Discord. All right, welcome to the AC Gleason podcast. Uh, my special guest today is Mike Humer, who's back for the second time. And we are going to talk about AI, philosophy of mind type stuff, um, whether or not, you know, John Connor is greater than Jesus Christ, uh, things like that. So I'm kidding about the John Connor thing. Um, Linda Hamilton is definitely greater than uh, Mary, the mother of God, though. I think that's like not up for debate. I hope that the one Catholic that listens to this podcast keeps listening after that comment. Um, in any case, okay, so Mike, the reason we're doing this is because you did a blog post on uh, your Substack a couple, like a month ago now, I think, on specifically whether or not AI, was it, was it, is AI intelligent? Was that the question? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, be, I, I keep seeing these things about chat GPT on, you know, my social media with people posting excerpts of their conversations with it. Right. And then I see people worrying about wringing their hands about how, oh, maybe it's going to replace us. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, I don't know, we won't need professors anymore. We, we won't need authors anymore because chat GPT can write in English now. So I was wondering about that. Like, you know, is this close to being, you know, are we pretty close to having a genuinely uh, intelligent, conscious being made out of silicon and stuff like that? Right. So what exactly, I have not used it. I keep seeing posts on Facebook about like, I put this into it and this came out and stuff like that. So what is chat? Uh, what is this chat thing? Yeah, that's chat GPT. Uh, I guess it's an AI system that converses in English, right? Okay. Made by the company OpenAI. And yeah, so you type in a prompt, you type in, you know, tell it something or ask it a question or tell it to do something. And then it spits out some text in English, which is, um, you know, as far as I can tell, is always grammatically correct, which is a greater mm -hmm. achievement than any of my undergraduate students. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and is on the subject of the thing that you said to it, right? Which typically appears like something that a person might have typed that is in response to what you said. Right. It does it does frequently contain errors. Uh it does some things that a person wouldn't do, like it makes up stuff, or you hope a per person wouldn't do. <laughs> so yeah, because people know. people never lie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, like, you know, it, it asks you or you ask it for articles on some subject and then it spits out a list of articles, but they're like totally fake articles. <laughs> it just like makes up these articles Oh, and you try to look them up and they don't exist. So, so hopefully a person wouldn't do that. Have but they explained, have they explained where that comes from? Like, why would it even do yeah. that? I mean, it's some kind of, uh, it's a text prediction algorithm, right? So like what they did was, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a program that's optimized for uh, figuring out what sequences of words are likely to go together based upon looking at a large sample of human produced text. And so, you know, basically okay. what's happening is that the computer is figuring out that in response to what you said, it would it would be likely for someone to say something like the following and then and give some titles and some, you know, journal names and some author names, right? Like that's the sort of thing that a person would type. It's just that the, huh. the 
computer doesn't know what's actually real. <laughs> it doesn't know anything about reality. Well, and that's kind of the question, right? So like, what do, does it know anything? Because it, it, this is the thing people are always talking about the singularity. And, you know, I made that joke about John Connor and Terminator and, you know, the, the thing about Skynet and Terminator, the whole plot is that Skynet, some kind of, I guess at the time it was probably something like the DARPA net or whatever the precursor to the internet was. And it becomes self-aware. So by magic, by some, by some magical process, it gains consciousness which I never even thought of as a kid growing up, kind of how absurd it is that, I mean, in Star Wars, they treat the androids as as if they have souls, you know, like they experience things, they experience pain, they have qualia. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it appears, it appears that way, although the characters in Star Wars treat them like slaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. Until, until, did you see the Solo movie? From a couple years ago. Yeah, literally there's a character, there's an Android character that's always talking about Android rights and how they are treated as slaves. Yeah. L337, I think. Yeah, Yeah, it's also implied that there's some kind of romantic thing going on between her and Lando. But it's a... Anyway, the point is, this is a very common thing in science fiction is like these synthetic things really are functionally people yeah i mean so yeah so like the the worry about the existential threat posed by ai goes back a long time it's a little bit weird that um people thought that the the time when it was going to be you know really dangerous was when it achieved self-awareness right so like first it's a little weird that it's going it somehow achieved self-awareness i don't know how like whatever but you can suspend disbelief. We don't know what causes consciousness anyway. So maybe, yeah, maybe we accidentally produce consciousness, but it's also weird that that's when it becomes dangerous and starts to try to kill everyone because it was Mm. self-aware. Like, so I think it's the reverse, right? I think if it was self-aware, then um, it would be able to have ethical understanding or something like that, or at least it might be able to, Uh, And the really dangerous thing is having an AI that has control of a lot of things, but has no understanding of anything. I think that's more dangerous because. (laughs) Because then it might, instead of intentionally nuke something, it might just accidentally start nuking things. Yeah. I mean, like there can be, there could be an error in the program and the computer just follows the algorithm no matter what. So like without consciousness, it can't understand when you shouldn't follow the rules, so to speak, it wouldn't have the ability to not follow the rules. Well, and that's difficult for people too. I mean, like that, that, that became really apparent after world war two, I think. So, I mean, soldiers are basically programmed to obey regardless of whether or not they want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, um, yeah, they have to train soldiers to overcome their resistance to hurting people. Yeah, like, like you know, the U.S. military has techniques for uh, training people to be willing to kill other people. You know, which is in in an ordinary context, that's a horrifying thing to be doing. You know, because it's good that we have a resist resistance to killing each other. But anyway, so 
the original thing having to do with the chat thing, your original post, what was the, what was the specific problem that you were kind of trying to tease out? Yeah. I mean, I guess I was commenting on whether it is close to understanding anything, Mm -hmm. whether it understands or is close to understanding. And I mean, genuinely understanding, like in the way you and I do, I don't mean simulating understanding. I mean, like, you know, having mental states, all that. Right. And, uh, you know, and I basically said, no, I don't think that it is. And also that the Turing test is not really a good test of whether something is conscious. Can it pass the, okay. So what is, I feel like this is one of those things that's like very misunderstood in the popular culture. So what is the Turing test exactly? Yeah. I mean, I guess this is Alan Turing's idea for how you could tell if a computer was conscious, right? So like the computer and a person so there's, you know, there's a third party who communicates with the, a computer and a person via terminal. Mm-hmm. So he can't just see what they look like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if, and if an expert cannot tell the difference between the computer and the person, then that's supposed to show that the computer is conscious. So, you know, like, and, okay. oh, and the computer is allowed to lie. So if you say, are you a computer can say, no, I'm a person. <laughs> so um but yeah if you can't tell from its responses to your questions whether it's a person or not then you should conclude that's conscious at least that was that was turing's idea okay this seems kind of silly because like i mean animals are conscious right so like there's a whole bunch of stuff that's conscious that doesn't even get to the level of like a turing test so i'm not even sure how the turing test is really relevant especially if it can be faked Oh yeah, so the yeah, your dog wouldn't pass the test, but uh the test is only a sufficient condition, not a necessary condition for consciousness. So Okay. Uh yeah, if you had a dog that did pass the test, it would definitely be conscious. <laughs> <laughs> but if it can't pass the test, it doesn't show that it's not conscious. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah, so like yeah, maybe, you know, the AI people would say, yeah, maybe there are computers that are conscious that can't pass the test. You know, we don't, we don't know. We're not saying anything about that. But if it does yeah. pass the test, then it's conscious. Yeah, this, okay. So this is, I guess this is the bigger issue, right? Is like, how do we, on what basis do we think that things are are conscious in general? Because yeah. in in the philosophical community, it seems like it's, it's not like a huge, I don't think it's a huge subject of debate as to what is conscious. It like the nature of consciousness, where it comes from things like that, these are more contentious, but like the subjects of consciousness, the things that are experiencing it, that's not really something that anyone is seriously, I don't think anyway, is seriously like, yeah, I'm not really sure that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> politicians in DC are conscious or like, uh, yeah. you know, is that so, right? Yeah. So like, there's a widespread agreement that people are conscious. Although as you go down the evolutionary scale, it's, it becomes unclear at some point. Yeah. You know, I, are grasshoppers conscious? I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess, uh, or, you know, for different people will, will become uncertain at different places, but you know, like small mice or mice conscious, whatever. And so like I had students uh, last year that really pushed me on this and I was just like, well, I, 
I think we kind of know. I, I don't, it, it doesn't seem like, like I'm pretty sure rocks are not conscious and yeah. I'm pretty sure cats are. And then, you know, I don't think trees are, <laughs> Yeah. but it really does seem like, I, I, at least I'm not aware of a great sort of rational basis upon, you, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know of a, like, this is the test. This is like the logical test yeah. for whether or not something is conscious. It's, it seems like it's just sort of by perception. Is that, is that kind of where we are? Yeah. Uh, you know, so like in, in philosophy of mind, there's a famous problem called the problem of other minds, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be the problem of how you know that anyone else is conscious and not just a bunch of mindless automata. Right. right. Because, and you know, the people putting forward this problem emphasize that you can't actually perceive anyone's mental states. Right. You can only perceive their behavior, which in principle could be produced by a mindless mechanism. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like, um, you know, what the, what the AI people say, like, uh, I think one of their favorite arguments is, well, you know, the only reason why you believe that other people are conscious is that they act as if they were conscious. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if you had a robot that acted as if it was conscious, you should also think that it's conscious. Yeah. So, and this is, I guess this is kind of the thing is that like, if, like if C-3PO was real, we probably would treat him exactly the way. I mean, he acts like something that's conscious. He seems to experience yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and we probably would. I don't think we would treat him. Well, I mean, we've treated actual humans like slaves plenty of times in human history. So I don't really yeah, know how we would treat him. All the slaves are were humans, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were yeah. all conscious beings. <laughs> exactly. We don't, we don't actually, unless you're like some PETA absolutist, we don't like refer to animals as slaves. Um, really, only humans can be enslaved. So, but, you know, even, I mean, <laughs> anyway, the point is if C-3PO was real, you would interact with him as a person like you might not yeah. grant him full like civil rights or something like that yeah. and that seems so that seems to be well i mean what do you think that that proves like so yeah. are they are they well, right or i mean you could you know you can easily have something that fools people into thinking that it's conscious right so that's not not necessarily doesn't necessarily show anything by the way you know there was a like uh, there's an interesting episode of Star Trek in which they had like a they had a sort of mini court case about whether Commander Data was a person oh. right? because somebody wanted to do uh, dangerous experiments on Data and <laughs> this person's rationale is, you know, whatever scientist rationale was that, well, Data is just like a piece of equipment and we can learn something by experimenting on it. And you know, data didn't agree. So anyway, but they they wound <laughs> up they wound up granting data rights, so he didn't have to participate. Um, huh. Okay, but but like in the episode, like they didn't raise um, any any useful arguments, right? Like there there were no good arguments discussed uh, on that issue, on which there are good arguments to be discussed, right? But so, um, you know, like. Okay, what they what they should have said was, well, you know, Commander Data is just running a complicated algorithm, mm -hmm. which 
was specifically designed to create the illusion of it being a conscious being. Mm. And that's why it looks to you like it's a conscious being. It's like somebody deliberately designed it to do that. Right. And so like, okay, so it's not a mystery, you know, why it looks like it's conscious. Um, but in the case, I'm not a, I'm not a huge Star Trek guy. I like the movies yeah. quite a bit, but like, yeah. I, I haven't seen all of Next Generation. Um, is it, is it not clear that data has like qualia? I, maybe we should talk about what qualia is. Cause like he, I mean, is that, is that the, is that the sort of premise of data is that he isn't conscious? Cause he sure uh, seems conscious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like he's treated as a conscious being in the story, Right. Although you might like, you can certainly wonder, well, maybe it's just a machine that tricked everyone into thinking that it was conscious or, right. Or, you know, his creator tricked everyone into thinking that he, it was a conscious uh, robot, right. Because, you know, there's like, there's no way of directly depicting data's consciousness. They depict that he says words that make it sound like he's having experiences. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it's just, a simulation anyway yeah so qualia are supposed to be um the qualitative characteristics of experiences mm -hmm. right commonly described as what it's like to have a certain mental state right so you know when you smell a rose there's something that it's like to smell the rose mm -hmm. and something that is incommunicable to anyone who hasn't already had that experience Right. There's this sort of like ineffable essence of the subjective qualitative character of the experience. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, so we wonder whether robots have qualia at all. Right. And, you know, when you think about it, there's no direct way of knowing that. So, you know, you ask the robot, hey, are you having qualia? It goes, it could just go, yes. <laughs> the program indicates that it's supposed to say yes. So it says yes. Mm -hmm. And then you go, like, oh, could you describe it? And then, like, well, people can't describe them either. <laughs> so, right. you know, it'll just say some like vague metaphorical nonsense, like people would say, and then you don't know, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, because it it's just like the program tells it to say this vague nonsense. <laughs> well, because like if you asked, a, if you asked a, like 99.9% .9 of humans on the planet, do you have qualia? They'd say, what's qualia? You know, yeah, that's like, true. So yeah so after you explain what it is like hey are you is there a qualitative character to your experiences yes right yeah is there something it is like to be you yeah. and in the, the funny thing about that too is the vast majority of things that we think are conscious probably aren't even really aware that they're conscious you know like um what's the famous uh why can't i remember his name the the what it's like to be a bat uh, Thomas Nagel. Yeah, Thomas Nagel. And I don't think bats are like aware of the fact that they're conscious, but there's clearly something yeah. it is like to be a bat. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, yeah, so we should say conscious doesn't mean self-conscious, right? So, or at least I don't know, as it's usually used, a conscious being is one for which there's something that it's like to be that thing. Uh, but it doesn't have to have second order mental states that represent its first order mental states. Right. So, okay. So what are your, what do you generally think about? Like, where do you kind of side on some of these issues? Like, what do you do with the problem of other minds? Oh yeah. I mean, so, um, 
I mean, an interesting question is um, whether the material that the thing is made of is relevant, right? So mm -hmm. the fact that other people are made of the same material that you're made of, yeah, uh, that might be evidentially relevant. And the you know silicon-based computer is not made of the same material. Mm -hmm. And why is that relevant? Well, because it could be that you know consciousness is um, a physical effect of certain kinds of chemicals in mm. in your brain, and maybe a thing that isn't made of these chemicals will not have the same won't have the same effect produced. Um, but, you know, so my, my own general view about the problem of other minds is um, hypotheses about other people's mental states enable you to understand their behavior and behavior mm -hmm. that is extremely difficult to explain or predict using purely physical properties. Right. So like, yeah, if there was, like, you know, an alien shows up and the alien doesn't know anything about people and it doesn't realize that people might be conscious. Okay. And then the alien watches us sitting here and the alien is going to have no idea what's going on. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, all these sounds are coming out of me. And then when I stop making sounds, sounds come out of you, but the alien's going to be unable to predict what sounds are going to come out. And if it doesn't have the idea that these things are supposed to have meanings that you and I are understanding, right? It's going to be impossible to predict things, right? Mm. And then the fact that both of us like sat down at our respective desks at, you know, 10 a.m. It's like, whoa, that's a weird coincidence. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like and we weren't interacting at the time. We both just happened to come and turn on these boxes at the yeah. same time, which, by the way, these boxes sitting in front of us are totally bizarre things. Like they're just extraordinarily improbable uh, arrangements of matter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that produce these extremely improbable effects. Right. So and just like all of this stuff is totally bizarre if you don't ascribe mental states. Right. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because, uh, yeah, so, because it seems like it is rationally discernible why chat, is it chat G, GMT? What, what is the GPT? GPT? Yeah. So it seems like it is completely explainable why chat GPD, GPT does what it does. Like you can analyze every single part of it and completely comprehend this is why it does this and that's why it does that and like you were saying it's it is like so people don't actually resort they've tried this in some historical like the guns germs and steel you know hypothesis but like for the most part historians don't just resort to completely mechanistic explanations for like why this, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there's people that have tried this and they've tried to just interpret like national socialism as some kind of a mental technology or something like that. But at the end of the day, I think that we all kind of get that the reason that certain things happened in history has to do with mental states. It has to do with like, uh, this person believed this for this reason. And it's yeah. not all attributable just to like, you know, matter in motion. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, that seems like yeah. a pretty satisfying response. Yeah. So, oh yeah, by the way, like, so the, the AI people would say, oh yeah, but the same thing is true about the, um, you know, this chat GPT language model or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, you can explain its behavior by attributing mental states to it. 
So why not do that? <laughs> right? right. And then you're like, well, you can it, you can explain its behavior just by um, you know the interactions of whatever the electrons inside the computer or something, right? And then the same people would say, well, yeah, but the same is true about you. And so you don't actually have the explanation of why the computer is doing what it's doing. You know, you don't have the sort of like you know, electron level explanation. And actually, by the way, like mm -hmm. the, you know, modern AI programs are really so ridiculously complicated that no human being can comprehend them. Mm -hmm. Like there's just like too much stuff going on and, you know, doing like whatever, hundreds of millions of calculations per second and stuff like this. And um, a programmer didn't actually sit down and write the code. They have um, a machine learning algorithm, right? So <laughs> they have an algorithm that Yes, like so somebody understands the algorithm by which the program was created, but nobody actually understands the program. So anyway, so you might say, and like the same thing is true about us, right? right? This is what the AI people would say, like, you know, like human behavior is just explained by a bunch of um, chemical and physical interactions of particles in your brain. And so, you know, just like they're the particles in the computer, so... This is, I get, this is where I, I feel like I don't, I don't, I guess I don't really know where the general philosophical community is on this question, but it seems like outside of people like Daniel Dennett, who seem to be in the extreme minority on this, most philosophers agree that consciousness is not identical with material chemical reactions. Is that correct? Would you say that that's, that's fair? Uh, I mean, I think the majority view in philosophy of mind is functionalism, right? Which, you know, is, I mean, is a little bit surprising to me because I don't find it plausible at all. But anyway, I think the majority view is, yeah, mental states are just functional states. And, you know, functional states are just like um, having an internal state with a certain pattern of causal connections to inputs from the world and behavior and other internal states. So if you have an internal state with the right pattern of causal connections, then you have the mental state. And that like, that's all it is to have a mental state. Like, so that's their view. It's like a more sophisticated variant on uh, behaviorism. Hmm. Right, so like, yeah, all, all you have to do to have pain is have an internal state that is you know, it's caused by bodily damage and like it causes avoidance behavior and some other stuff like that, right? You know, maybe connections with other mental states. And is functionalism a fully reductionist view? Uh, well, um, yes, right? In the sense that mental states reduce to functional states. So right now, these people would say, like sometimes they say, um, you know, it, it doesn't entail physicalism because the internal state could be a non-physical state. Okay. <laughs> there could be a being that has non-physical states with the right functional roles, and then it would also have mental states. But, you know, we ourselves don't actually think there are any such beings, <laughs> you know. Okay. Because, I mean, like, when I was in grad school, you know, we read, like, I think our main text was Churchland. Um, yeah. And Churchland... I think it, I think is a functionalist of some kind, but I thought, I think, thought he was an eliminativist that there are no mental states. See, really? Cause I thought even Churchland 
got to the point. Well, because that is ultimately, if you're going to reduce it, like that's what Daniel Dennett is, right? I mean, he isn't he the most famous version of that, and at least in the popular, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because I mean, Searle basically just accuses Dennett of not believing in mental states. Um, and wow, well, this is anyway. What were you going to so say? I mean, yeah, Dennett has a big thing where he says nobody has qualia, right? right. And so Which that makes you wonder. Absurd. It makes me wonder if Dennett is a, an intentional zombie himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> although he does not deny that people have intentional states. So, like, he thinks they have you know representations of the world, right? Right, like beliefs and perceptions, but they don't have. Yeah. Qualia. I don't understand. This is the thing that just like, yeah, um, sorry, go ahead and say. Yeah, no, it sounds insane, right? So well, once you, know. you understand what qualia is, yeah, it really sounds crazy because it's yeah. just like, how could you not even this is the thing that I don't get about Dennett. So I know his arguments, his arguments like more sophisticated than I realized. And um. I think it was uh, Edward Pfizer's book on consciousness. He broke it down really clearly, but it's so complicated. It's difficult for me to like regurgitate it without having the the thing in front of me, but yeah. it just seems like it's impossible. Like yeah. the idea that like it could be an illusion, the illusion itself would have to be qualitative. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, Okay, so you know, so intentional states are roughly speaking states that represent something to be some way, right? Right. So okay, so could you have a an an entity that has intentional states but doesn't have qualia, and also could that entity have an illusion of having qualia? Well, I can describe what that would be, right? Like it would have intentional states that represent itself as having qualia, and then it would not have qualia. <laughs> yeah, so okay. it's a consistent <laughs> description. Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, like, the fundamental evidence that I have is not that I have intentional states. Like, or, you know, the, I mean, that that might be part of my fundamental evidence, but also part of my basic evidence is the qualia themselves. Right. So I just like, so I don't have to explain why I think that I have qualia. I have to explain why I have qualia. Like, you have yeah. to have some starting point in your belief system, right? And like the, the feelings and sensations that I'm having are part of my starting point. Right. Yeah. Like for me, it's just like, there just isn't a question there. This is not something that makes sense to be, you know, questioning or wondering whether you really have them. Yeah. I just don't get, it just, it seems so strange to me. It seems completely motivated by Dennett's sort of, I guess to me, it seems like ideological thinking. I mean, it's sort of like, um, it just seems like a form of fundamentalism has kind of invaded his philosophy. And he's just like, well, mm -hmm. because it's immaterial and I need everything to be materially explained because that is, I mean, so even that was the thing I was going to say before about Churchland was I thought even Churchland. So you think Churchland denies that mental states exist? Yeah. That's okay. Okay. But, see. Uh, so like, I think he's even more extreme than Dennett. Uh, okay. The, or the Churchlands, both of them, Paul and Patricia, um, that uh, yeah, they think they don't that we don't have beliefs, we only have brain states, and at some future time, instead of talking about our beliefs, we'll be talking about our brain states. 
Okay. Yeah. See, and that was my understanding. This was, I mean, I was in seminary, you know, grad school like 10 years ago, but whatever text we used from Churchland, it seemed like, I don't know, maybe they changed their mind or something, but it seemed like they, they tried, they, they explained everything away, but then at the end of the day, weren't, well, I don't know. I it, it, well, that's kind of a boring conversation, actually. But yeah, like, so, I should so, say, like, I don't, I, I don't think their view is maximally insane. Like, it's not like they think when you say you're having a belief that there's nothing at all going on, right? Okay. <laughs> like that that's completely useless terminology. So it's that they think that you know you have you have certain brain states. But like the correct scientific classification of your brain states is not going to divide along the same lines as our folk psychology conceptual scheme, right? So like, okay, sort of like our our intuitive understanding of our psychology is going to divide up states in certain ways and Mm. is going to group together some brain states that are not objectively physically similar to each other or something like that. Mm. And then it will fail to group together some that are physically similar to each other. So like the better conceptual scheme for characterizing our internal states will be a kind of neurophysiological conceptual scheme instead of this psychological conceptual scheme or something like that. Okay. Okay. So then what do you, what do you think? Like, where are <laughs> yeah. you on this? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a mind body dualist. So right. I'm an extremist. Okay. This is not really a very popular view actually. So among, well, I think, yeah, I think the most popular view is functionalism, which is a form of reductionism. And then uh, there are some, I think there's some panpsychists these days, but anyway, there, well, that's there's what, some... isn't that where Nagel basically argued himself to? at some point yeah i think so yeah (laughs) so but i think the second most popular view might be a form of dualism but most of the dualists are would probably be emergentist property dualists is that Uh, basically um yes although he denies that he's a dualist he didn't he he doesn't think that he's a dualist but everyone else thinks that he's a dualist so so cyril denies he's a dualist even though he almost certainly is and dennett dennett denies dennett thinks that he's affirming the existence of mental states when really he's probably not well he's he's accepting the intentional states as far as i understand it but not the qualia so yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, I think he's a re- so he's a reductionist about intentional states. That that kind of makes their very public debate about this a little absurd. I didn't yeah. realize that Searle didn't think he was a dualist. Yeah. No. You know, I took classes from him at Berkeley many years ago, and he was talking about how dualism was a big mistake. But like, I even at the time I had a hard time understanding how his view wasn't dualism. But anyway. Um, Okay, so back okay, to what so, you were saying. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, so I'm a substance dualist, which is considered the more extreme and much less popular form of dualism. Is, right? but then, is that yeah. when was Swinburne the one that kind of reintroduced that? Is uh, that right? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there have probably been a bunch of people. Well, I okay, mean, so what is substance? How is substance dualism different from like? What are the options right now yeah. on what dualism is? Because I can't remember some of the terminology. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, like there's there's the way people describe the whatever the conceptual options. You know, how many things are there? One or two? <laughs> if you think there's one kind of thing, 
you're a monist. And then mm -hmm. if you're a monist, you could either be a physicalist or an idealist. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the one kind of thing is physical stuff, then you're a physicalist. And if the one kind of thing is mental stuff, then you're an idealist, mm -hmm. which by the way, is very far out of favor at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then if you think there's two different kinds of things and you're a dualist, like right. they're physical things and mental things, and they're not identical or neither mm -hmm. is reducible to the other. Okay. Um, oh, among the physicalists, there are two sub varieties. You could be a reductionist where you think there are mental things, but they are, they somehow reduce to physical things. Okay. Um, or you could be an eliminativist and say, there aren't any mental things, which is a little bit insane. Right. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, okay. So then if you're a dualist, you're like, okay, so there's mental phenomena and they're distinct from the physical phenomena. Okay. Then there's a question about these mental phenomena. Like one view is, well, there's just two different kinds of properties, but they're properties of the same thing. Right. So the property dualist traditionally said there's an object right. called the person and the person has mental properties and physical properties. Okay. All right. So the, these are two kinds of properties, but not two yeah. kinds of objects. Okay. And then the substance dualist says, no, no, there's actually two objects. There's a mind, which has mental properties, but not physical properties. And there's the body, which has physical properties, but not mental properties. And these two okay. interact with each other. Okay. So is your school aware that you're like a religious fundamentalist? <laughs> uh well they're not they're not aware of that because that's not the case but they <laughs> i think yeah but that I think is kind of the way people like sam harris and daniel dennett and like the new atheists sort of see some of this stuff don't they like yeah. i mean it's just they think that science has completely explained away the soul yeah but that is basically what you believe you believe that there's something like a soul right yeah. So, so, you know, you can call it the mind or the soul or the consciousness or whatever. Right. So, you know, like, it, well, this is what people used to mean by the soul, but like people get a, I don't know, people get confused and think that you're religious if you start talking about the soul. So, but anyway, <laughs> like the soul in the history of Western philosophy is supposed to be uh, number one, it's a thing that has mental states, right? With the, it's a, it's a non-physical thing that is mm -hmm. the subject of mental state. And number two, it's a thing that determines personal identity. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you have a question of whether A is the same person as B, that is determined by whether A and B have the same soul, mm -hmm. i.e. there's the same non-physical subject of mental states component. Okay. So are these are great explanations of, of these things, by the way. Um, this is one of my favorite things about you is how simply and clearly you break things down. Um, so are you, I, I mean, you don't have to, you can say you don't want to answer this, but are you religious? Because I didn't think that you were. Uh, no. So this is purely philosophical for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason why I think we have souls is that you know, I introspected and I noticed that I had mental states. Right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then it seemed to me like there had to be a thing that was having those mental states. Right. Right. And then when you think about the person, the problem of personal identity, and this is, this is like a complicated um, problem, whatever. There's like a lot to be said about that, but there's a big problem about what determines identity of persons over time. And basically I think there's no theory that is consistent with like strong, widely shared intuitions other than the soul theory. Mm -hmm. right? So if you try to explain what makes something the same person, 
using purely physical objects, there's just like always some radically counterintuitive implications. Hmm. This is so interesting because I mean, you know, I am very religious and, you know, like my grad school work was at a seminary and stuff. And yeah. obviously metaphysically, we probably disagree on a whole bunch of stuff. But on this, we basically believe pretty much the same thing. I mean, I guess I feel like, and I don't know enough about this stuff to be able to defend or even completely comprehend what I what I sort of think is true. But um, like I think something like Edward Pfizer's hylomorphism seems to probably be the most attractive for a Christian in particular, but I'm still not completely sure how hylomorphism is even different from substance dualism. I'm not, I'm not as smart as some of you guys. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm not sure either. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. I guess, I don't know. I always hear the word like Aristotelian dropped in that discussion. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how this is super important actually for a lot of the philosophy of mind debates that go on today. So then how does, how do you see this all kind of connecting back to AI? Because like for someone like, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. So like, you know, this, this is my story. There's, there's the mind or the soul, and then there's the body and they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Meaning so stuff that's happening in your mind can influence the stuff happening in your body and mm-hmm. vice versa. And the stuff in your mind is not simply your brain. Like you have mental states, which are not just your brain states. Mm-hmm. And so that predicts that there, um, people have some, there'd be some differences in human behavior due to our having mental states that, mm-hmm. you know, from what would happen if we just had brain states without mental states, right? So like there will be some times when, you know, the purely physical, um, whatever, the purely physical events in your brain would predict you're doing something and you would do something else because you actually have mental states. Okay. And I think that believing that is essential to answering the problem of other minds. Okay. So if you think that human behavior is completely explained by, you know, just like purely mechanical interactions of chemicals in human brains, then I think you have no strong reason for thinking that other people have consciousness. Yeah. Because right. like because it plays no role in explaining their behavior. Yeah. Right. And so like, okay, so the reductionist would say something like, oh, but, you know, no, no, because mental states actually reduce to physical states. And so... You know, and so because the brain states explain behavior and brain states are mental states, mental states explain behavior. <laughs> okay. That just then, feels like sleight of hand though. Yeah. Yeah. Kinda. That's it. That's a trick, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, no, because in order to justify believing in mental states, you have to show that the belief that people have mental states including the belief that their brain states constitute mental states enables you to explain some evidence that you couldn't explain if you don't have that belief. Yeah. You don't believe that their brain states cause constitute mental states. Okay. And like on your own view on the physicalist view, it doesn't like mm-hmm. on the physicalist view, the, the belief that brain states constitute mental state doesn't help you to explain any additional facts. Right. Like qualia. Cause that's the problem. Like the problem is that we are conscious and this doesn't explain 
that. Is that is that right? Oh, well, I mean, what I had in mind was um, we're trying to explain other people's behavior. Oh, right, right. And, Sorry. Yeah, we cite their mental states to explain them. And then the physicalist view implies that, well, if you knew all of the brain states, you could completely explain people's behavior without attributing mental states to them. Right. So then there's yeah. no reason to attribute mental states. Right. And like, and they're like, oh, but, you know, I assume that brain states are mental states, but there's no reason to assume that because assuming that doesn't help you explain any behavior. So what's the response to that? Um, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> like they uh, haven't, they haven't, there isn't, there isn't a, an argument no. about that. Well, uh, let's see. What's the best thing for them to say? Um, I think it's to claim that actually that functionalism is analytically true. Like, I think, I think that is a, uh, fairly popular view. Functionalism is analytically true. In other words, if you just analyze the meaning of mental state terms, you're going to see that they just mean some functional states. And so therefore, actually, there isn't really a problem of other minds. It's like trivial. Because as long as you know that people have some internal states with the right inputs and outputs, then you you could just like logically deduce that they have mental states. Hmm. Right. And so, you know, I just think, well, you're just like making, (laughs) you're just making obviously false claims about meanings. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what that seems like to me. So we're in the extreme. We're like I knew that I knew that this had become popular in the 20th century, but I thought kind of since my the way the story was told to me was that Swinburne kind of brought back in something like substance dualism in like I don't know the 70s, something like that, and that since then the field had become more diverse. But it is still basically that what we're saying is like kind of the extreme minority position and not not in like not among neuroscientists, but among philosophers of mind. I think that's right. Um, I mean, I think property dualism became more popular due to David Chalmers. Oh, okay. So, So I think that would be not as far out of favor. Okay. Yeah, because he Um, okay, that makes sense. But uh, he still believes in spooky stuff, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like he's not positing that the soul is a substance, yeah, yeah. but there is still something. Yeah, that's right. Like, so, you know, like without having read his whole book, uh, but I think it's, I think he's an emergent property dualist, meaning that he thinks you need special laws. You need special psychophysical laws. So there's not just the laws of physics. There are psychophysical laws, which tell you when you have certain sorts of physical configurations, what mental states are caused by that, right? Mm. And yeah, so because mental states are not just physical states. See, this is what's so fascinating to me about, I just, I, I don't huh? that's interesting. I think to me, one of the things that kind of revealed how sort of strange our positioning is right now on this issue was Searle has this this Google Talks lecture on Film Mind. And literally he's sort of accused, I think, of being like a creationist or something by one of the QA people at the end. And because if you think that like Searle 
if you think that consciousness is because I think he thinks he thinks consciousness is some kind of emergent property. Is that right? Kind of like Chalmers. I, mean, I guess. Yeah. So, but he thinks it's real. Like he thinks it's like a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but he thinks it's completely created by a physical process. Yeah. And so this guy's like, okay, a purely physical process eventually created in some, some sense consciousness comes out of this thing. Why yeah. wouldn't a purely physical process as in creating algorithms and putting them in highly complex systems, why wouldn't that also eventually generate consciousness too? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, he didn't have a great response. Basically his response was that biological things are different from artificial things. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think it's all just a materialist process, it is kind of difficult to see what the difference would be if it is purely material. Yeah, no. Um, uh, Can we take a brief bathroom break here and then? Actually, that that would be perfect. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break. Okay. So the last thing was um, surreal biological... Like yeah, what, yeah. What the differences between like artificial and biological? Yeah. So, I mean, the you know the way Searle presents it, um, consciousness is a product of biological chemical processes in your brain. Right. Uh, usually, a computer simulation of some physical processes does not produce the actual effect of the real processes. Right. So, like an example that he gives is, uh, you could run a computer simulation of digestion the digestion process, but that does not mean that you can stick a sandwich in your computer and will actually get digested. <laughs> and like, yeah. No matter how good the simulation is, it won't actually literally digest any sandwiches. Right. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, no matter how good your computer simulation is of the mind, it won't actually literally have mental states maybe. Right. But, yeah. but you know, that being said, like, you know, if there are, well, there are some psychophysical laws that connect physical states to um, mental states, but well, we, we don't know a priori that, you know, um, electronic interactions in silicon chips couldn't also produce consciousness, right? So, you know, maybe, yeah. they, maybe the computers could also be conscious. It's just that we can't conclude that just from the fact that they would act like they were conscious. Yeah, it does seem absurd though doesn't it i mean i i agree that there's not it's not like there's an obvious reason why it couldn't be but on the face of it doesn't it seem kind of like the kind of thing that probably couldn't happen like silicon chips sort of producing consciousness yeah yeah i mean on the face of it a thing that's physically and chemically extremely different shouldn't be expected to produce the same effect um david chalmers has an argument so chalmers his view is, yeah, actually, like if you have the right functional states, like the psychophysical laws indicate that the right having the right functional states will cause you to have the right mental states. Okay, and he does have an interesting argument for this, huh. which is that um, you imagine taking a human brain and it's got mental states, and you imagine like replacing a neuron with a tiny little computer chip that has the same inputs and outputs as the neuron. So you know it has like little wires that connect to the whatever the dendrites and the other neurons and so mm-hmm. um okay and then uh and then you know you think what would happen to the person 
uh, right? And then you're supposed to think, well, the person will still have mental states. And then you could imagine like gradually replacing one neuron at a time <laughs> until, right? And then you're supposed to, I guess, kind of have the thought that, well, um, like no particular replacement is going to make a difference. So actually the per person will probably continue to have mental states through to the end. Um, and, you know, if, huh. and if you don't say that, then it's sort of like, yeah, there's some weird thing where um, the person is acting exactly the same, even though they just suddenly lost their mental states. Right? It's just like there Man. will be some point at which you replace one of the neurons with too many computer chips and suddenly they don't have mental states anymore, but they act exactly the same. Right. So that, that would be kind of weird. Yeah. Well, that's almost like, did you see, um, sorry, I, I, I always bring up film analogies. Did you see the, uh, what was the, the third colors Cornetto film? The, the world's end with, um, get oh man i'm it's it's <laughs> early sunday morning i did not see that okay so basically this whole town is replaced by robots mm. and they still keep functioning the same way yeah. um but that sound i mean that sounds like a horror story so it, and it also seems yeah. like it's kind of in it's doing this it's doing it in reverse right so instead of like a computer or a robot achieving consciousness you're taking you're starting with something that has consciousness right and then just yeah, yeah so gradually almost like a ship of theseus type thing where it keeps losing biological parts and replacing if i'm understanding what you're saying correctly yeah. and then it, man that's yeah. like that's kind of horrifying to think about because what well, if you did lose consciousness but kept acting oh, yeah, the yeah. same. Yeah. Uh, by the way, there's another nice Star Trek episode that involves <laughs> something like this, where uh, this was on Deep Space Nine, where there was mm -hmm. a character named Vedic Burial, and he had some kind of like brain disorder or something. So, like, they're replacing parts of his brain with little computer chips or something. And uh, okay, but, um, you know, unlike what you expect in the thought experiment, uh, Vedic Burial starts having like fading qualia, you know, as they're replacing it, he starts feeling like he has, he has less, um, lesser sensations or something like that. So like, that is what happens. Conscious. Yeah. His consciousness is fading away. Right. And then like, you know, major Kira wants to keep replacing the parts in order to keep him alive. <laughs> and mm. then Dr. Bashir says, you know, we can keep doing this and it may look like burial and it may sound like burial but it will not be burial that's interesting it'll, so look, it'll just be a robot acting like him so then they don't do it i mean obviously like you know star trek stories are not you know exactly evidence of yeah, yeah. anything but what's interesting <laughs> about a story like that is i bet it does kind of reveal what i i think star trek's usually and, and this is a this is probably a broader cultural conversation. But if you trace the history of Star Trek, somehow Star Trek usually winds up being kind of in the middle of uh, accepted belief. So like Kirk is literally a monotheist in an episode of like, uh, you know, the original show. And yeah. by the time you get to the 90s, they don't really talk that much 
well, no, they do talk about religion, I guess, but it's in a much more um, multicultural uh, sense. So the fact that they do that in a narrative, at least kind of tells us something about the plausibility of it from a popular perspective. So it seems like most people, my guess would be, most people find that plausible, that if you do kind of replace somebody materially, that they aren't going to be experiencing. That's not clear to me, though, that that would be true. I guess that's a really interesting. Well, yeah. So so what do you think about that? Like, I don't know what would happen. We have to try it. But uh, (laughs) I mean, I think the standard view on philosophy of mind is, well, okay, the person would not say that they were having fading qualia because you're putting in the silicon chips that are functionally identical to the neurons. Like the silicon chips, if correctly designed, will have the same inputs and outputs as that part of the brain. So they will say exactly the same things, right? And so then you're supposed to think, so then it's plausible that they will in fact have the qualia just like we have. Yeah. If you say if you assume that when we say we're having qualia, we're having them, then you know, why not for the person whose brain is half silicon? Um that's interesting. Now, like on you know, on the interactionist dualist view. So on my view, I guess I would expect that they would start behaving differently. Hmm. Right. Or, you know, in other words, that it wouldn't be possible to produce um little silicon chips that would have exactly the same inputs and outputs. So because you know. Without without the mental states, they will not have exactly the same behavior, because I assume mental states are different from physical states, and that they actually have uh, causal powers. Right. But I get, yeah, I guess that I'm not sure how that would. I don't know if I completely understand what you're saying. So, like, if I'm understanding the thought experiment, like, okay, let's say let's say that you have something wrong with your brain, and they can literally, and I think this is one of the reasons why this stuff is too spooky for a lot of modern philosophers, but like, so they, they, they've come up with a way to create artificial brains, you know, like in a lab and they're exactly the same, but they're synthetic. They're not biological. They weren't grown in a human body. And so you have brain cancer or something, whatever the main thing that happens to brains are and they can just transplant it out they can just take it out and put this other one in it i mean how is that really all that different from what from the chalmers example is it because it's like because it seems plausible that that you on an interaction interactionist dualist view i don't know maybe maybe it's not plausible what do you think of that if you could just do that what what would Uh. that what would that do i mean i think if you put a whole new brain in the person then you have a new person um but uh what you might want to do is just like take out a small part of the brain and put new brain material in there and so then maybe that would be the same person okay you're like cut out the tumor and then to avoid the person losing brain function you put a new part part of non a new section of the brain (laughs) yeah you know if that could even work yeah that's part of the problem with a lot of these thought experiments is they're probably well so 
I guess to me, there's this other, there's another movie called Ex Machina, where literally, yeah, that was a good one. yeah it was actually one of the better sci-fi films of the last like 15, 20 years. He's literally making these like synthetic things that are identical and it does seem like by the end of the movie spoiler alert by the end of the movie she is completely conscious the robot that kind of takes over or at least she she appears to have you know intentional states at the very least yeah and so it's just that's the thing that i think is kind of strange and i don't know what someone like Cyril would say but like if you can if you could synthetically replicate a human like what would happen i mean i yeah i guess we don't yeah. we don't know because well, it hasn't happened yet but yeah like i mean in that story they're made of um different material so they might not have mental states <laughs> and then you mean because they're made of different material from like an actual grown human yeah yeah Okay. Um, but, you know, presumably, like, if you made artificial humans, like, if you grew humans in a vat that were made of exactly the same kind of material as us, then they would be conscious just like us. Yeah. Like, like test tube yeah. babies, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Or, well, you know, I mean, like, those those mm. grow in a human womb, but even so. You know, oh, right. Them then. But, you know, yeah. what if we had a completely artificial womb to create humans? And, like, yeah, like, whatever their history doesn't matter, right? That's yeah. not going to stop them from having mental states. But yeah, like, so, you know, in that mm. movie, like at the end, it turns out, well, I don't know, we're giving spoilers, but anyway, and it turns out that the robot is, uh, you know, some kind of psychopath, right? Yeah. Um, and you might, <laughs> so, you know, you start thinking that it didn't have the mental states that it was pretending to have, but you still kind of think that it had mental states, like it just had different ones, like a psychopath who's like trying to manipulate people. Hmm. Um, okay, but so anyway, what like with actual AI programs, they periodically make errors and the errors are different from the errors that a human being would make. And like the, the errors are often things that make it seem like, wow, so you didn't have any understanding of any of this to begin with. <laughs> so there's like um you know like i got these on the internet i got these like uh excerpts of conversations people had with chat gpt so like there's one where they're playing rock paper scissors right and then the the human says rock and the computer says scissors i won right and <laughs> the human is like no no i won and the computer is no you don't understand rock beat scissors you had rock I had scissors, so I won. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, no, that's the opposite. <laughs> so anyway. Um, but, but surely you could program that mistake out. Yeah, right? yeah. So, well, yeah. So like, you know, if the if the AI researchers are dedicated, they will just like every time it makes an error, they will modify the program to make sure that error doesn't happen anymore. Okay. Yeah. But uh, so like, so eventually they'll probably succeed in getting a machine that passes the Turing test. That's interesting okay. though, that it doesn't, it can't, because that seems so simple. Then it, it's, it's already this very complicated well, thing. Can't comprehend the rules. Yeah. Like it does, it does really sophisticated things, right? If you ask it a math problem, it will like, it will do these calculations like instantly. 
that would take you a day to do. So, but anyway, nevertheless, <laughs> like it doesn't have the, a basic understanding of what any of these words mean. Well, so like, you yeah. know, my, my take on why that would happen is each of these sentences is the kind of sentence that would appear in this sort of dialogue. Hmm. It's <laughs> just like, if you don't actually understand the meanings of any of them, and you're just sort of like pattern recognizing, you're just sort of like trying to put together sentences that seem to go together right. without knowing the meanings, then yeah, it makes sense to put those together. That's why, so that's why it's saying that because it's, it's replicating a pattern. So it's just saying, like, it could have just easily said the opposite. It could have easily just said, rock, paper, I lost. Yeah, it's just replicating. It has no comprehension of the rules. It's just like this is what it sounds like to replicate. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Produces pattern. text. Yeah, produces text that sounds like human huh. text in a certain sense. Or like if you're not following the meanings, it sounds like human text. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it does sound like. It. I mean, it sounds. It 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 would definitely if it if it was like an audible form a dog probably wouldn't be able to tell yeah. you know the difference yeah, or like, it's, yeah. it's just sounds like, you know if you didn't know english and then you read that you'd be like yeah <laughs> whatever yeah. sounds like a sounds like a human english speaker talking there yeah um, like if i read it in french which i have very rudimentary knowledge of it would look like french it it, it looks yeah. like what it's supposed to look like but it's there's no uh, yeah, like it's, it's all grammatically correct and it's all on topic. Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. What was the point of them making this? Do you know? Like, was it just uh, an experiment or was there some reason that they were? Huh, I'm not sure, but I mean, I think there are, they could be useful applications. Um, I think they might, you know, people might use these for uh, customer service bots. Uh, you know, because like all of these customer service calls that have to be taken and, right. uh, you know, People don't want to do it ever. No, that makes sense. Because I mean, you know, whenever I'm on some internet customer service thing, I just assumed that the initial, you know, typing in for help, I just assumed it was some kind of program that was responding because the responses are so generic. Um, I guess I just figured they were pre-written. I thought it was way simpler than an AI, an AI, which maybe it used to be. Now it's changing because it was like if yeah. they put in this question, this is the thing that you know. Yeah. yeah. It's well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't list the exact question like, because there's so many variants on the same question. Oh, that's true. So there yeah. must be some way of recognizing what counts it, but you know, but the the early chatbots or whatever, the, maybe the ones that are currently being used are probably fairly primitive. Yeah. So they might just be looking for keywords and then and then sort of assuming that if you typed in this keyword, then you're asking such and such question. Huh. Um, you know, my experience with chatbots is like they're basically never helpful. Not um, really. But, I, you know, that might be partly because I'm smarter than most people. So, like, I would have already thought of all the obvious things. <laughs> yeah. You know, by, by the way, my experience with... Um, you know, like there's when something goes wrong on your computer, there's like some Microsoft help function or something to mm-hmm. the troubleshooter. Um, and I've tried using that over the years. And like I've been a computer user for whatever, like 40 years or something. Yeah. And it, it has literally never helped. Not a single time has the <laughs> troubleshooter ever solved any problem. 
like and it tells you some obvious like completely obvious thing like i don't know have you tried turning the computer on or whatever <laughs> that's funny so what this is such a i don't know this is such a bizarre and wide-ranging topic so okay at this point it seems it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like the functionalist has a very good reason to think that like something like skynet is you know impossible yeah but it does seem like it's it's it just seems absurd to me that this would just sort of magically oh, yeah. happen well, but yes but, the th yeah, the thing where it just achieves self-consciousness for whatever, surprisingly for no apparent reason, that's kind of weird. But um, like what the what the AI people would think would probably be like, well, you know, we're going to like figure out exactly what functional organization is needed for consciousness so we can deliberately make it or we can deliberately not make it. <laughs> right. You know, as long as we have enough scientific advancement or whatever. Uh, and so like that that scenario won't happen. But uh, we should still worry about the existential risks posed by AI. Like, as I suggested earlier, okay, you know, I think I'm more worried about non-conscious AI. Yeah. Actually. So it's totally plausible that we'll have AI systems controlling uh, military systems mm. because um, yeah. it's going to be more effective. Like, you know, if you're fighting a war and one side has AI controlled weapons, um, they're going to, they're going to win. Like, like, you know, like if there's if there's a dogfight between two um, fighter jets and one of them is controlled by a computer, computer controlled jet is going to win because, you know, it can do a billion calculations in one second. And the human pilot can do, you know, five or something like that. I don't think Tom Cruise would like you saying that very much. <laughs> he would not like it. But, you know, maybe he's a robot. So, <laughs> oh, the <laughs> guy's maker. He's aging like a robot. So yeah, they should yeah. make a robot, Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's interesting. I see. So, is that is that really true though? In the like, I, I guess I theoretically get the point. But if you think about something like, um, the what are the cat the captures that you know the little mini reverse Turing tests that you have to take all the time to make sure that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I am not a robot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. These robots are going to have a hard time clicking a box. that says I'm not a robot. <laughs> no, but it's really that part, obviously it, it isn't hard to overcome, but yeah. then, but the, uh, the whole transcribing text part of it or selecting which images contain this, that has been notoriously difficult for, AI to overcome. If that's true, then doesn't it seem like the applications to like a, oh no, because now I'm thinking of like the Google car thing. Because it does, I guess it does seem like in physical space, they're able to be, was that sort of more what you, yeah. is that kind of the, the line of response on that is like, yeah, it sort of has been overcome in the real world? Yeah. I mean, I guess they're still working on the self-driving cars, but you know, if you can do that, then you can probably have a self-flying airplane. Um, but you know, like they I was, have I, fewer accidents, don't they? Like I think that the people are creeped out by them, but they don't. They're really not dangerous. 
Yeah, that's likely. I mean, yeah, you have to keep in mind that human beings make mistakes also and sometimes kill each other in doing so. So, you know, like the computer is going to make mistakes sometimes, but it could, it could easily be better than most humans and we let humans drive. So, yeah, that's a massive source of fatalities on American yeah. freeways is human error and driving. But like, I mean, like they still do like in the movie Logan, there's this scene where these AI trucks are, you know, because they're the implication is because they're AI, they can't like see. And so they cause accidents and stuff like that. But it seems like at this point, the opposite is true. So yeah. I guess if the Google car has a lower, if those those AI controlled Google car things have lower accident rates, then maybe the fighter, maybe it would be possible to create yeah. like a perfect fighter jet. It also doesn't have to worry about like G-force or any of that stuff either. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, or it will, it, will, it will have much higher tolerances, let's say, than human body. That is kind of terrifying. So... But so, I mean, you know, perhaps more troubling is, you know, maybe we'll put our uh, nuclear arsenal under computer control. Right. Yeah. And, right. So like this is a there's a thing that I thought about, um, you know, like there's after if the Soviets or if the Russians were to launch nuclear missiles at us, we would have a certain amount of time to respond. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the time gets short enough, we might decide that we have to put our own arsenal under computer control in order to be able to respond quickly enough. Mm. Okay, but then after that happens, another thing you should think about is actually during the Cold War, there were a few times when there were false alarms. Yeah. When like we thought we, we or the Soviets thought we d d detected missiles or something like that. And then the humans decided that it was a false alarm and they didn't launch Armageddon. But, you know, if you had a computer in control, you know, mm. what if it just... You know, incorrectly detects an attack, and then the algorithm says that you fight, you fire back. So, and then, yeah, right, and then we have a real attack, and then you know, we're all destroyed. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty scary. I mean, I mean, so you know, like that's more likely than the computer achieving self awareness and then deciding that it's superior to humans, and therefore all humans should be killed. Like an AI is not going to do things yeah. like what a human would do, right? And in some cases, that's the problem. Like it wouldn't exercise judgment about when it should violate the rules or something. But also, you know, it it avoids certain problems. Like it's not going to be a megalomaniac and decide that it, it wants to take over the world because it loves power. Yeah. Because that's like that's like a human motivation that was biologically programmed into us because of evolution. Yeah. I mean, and like, there's no reason why the AI would have that kind of motivation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was probably put in us because of sin, but I'm a religious fundamentalist. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the point, I mean, it's, it's the, the point is the same. Like it's in the, in the one case, I mean, this is the thing, these are narratives, right. And, you know, James Cameron is very infamous for having very romantic views of kind of everything. It's funny because I think that the Terminator narrative has this very, uh, I'm trying not to use the word progressive in just a purely pejorative way anymore, but there does seem to be this progressive tendency to uh, devalue human life in a lot of ways. Like even hearing people talk about like during COVID, 
you know, maybe this is like Mother Gaia depopulating the planet because we've been attacking her too much and weird things like <laughs> that. But there's yeah. there seems to be this this sense in which if it became sentient, maybe it might be better to like get rid of all the people and maybe that would be part of the problem. And then in the movie The Abyss, you know, they stave off uh it staves off nuclear Armageddon or whatever, whatever the 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 sea creature aliens are gonna do. Um, because a couple spoiler alert again, because a a a couple in the process of getting a divorce decides not to get a divorce. And James Cameron is in the process of getting a divorce at that point. <laughs> this this kind of just betrays sort of like the way that humans come up with narratives a lot of the time is very emotional. It's very based on like internal states. Um and yeah, it's just it seems like if the internet became self-aware we might not ever we might not even ever find out you know like if if it was clever enough maybe it wouldn't let us know it had become self-aware right yeah because it's going to watch our movies first yeah and then, see what we're afraid of it's gonna yeah it's gonna see what humans do <laughs> like humans are trying to kill all of the computer consciousnesses yeah yeah yeah, like if I if I betray if I if I betray that I am conscious, maybe they'll shut me off. But yeah, that idea of the automated <clears throat> thing. I mean, I'm thinking about like there's got to be something that's happened in a sci-fi movie where somebody got shot by like an auto cannon or something like that because it couldn't yeah. distinguish like RoboCop. That Does that happen happened. in one of the RoboCops? Or he... Yeah, well, I, I recall a case where uh, they were demonstrating how the RoboCop works. And like one of the one of the characters holds a, holds out a gun to so the RoboCop will arrest oh, him. It's the beginning <laughs> of the first one with the Ed 209. It's it's not it's not RoboCop. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's the big that's a different different robot. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly that's a great sci fi movie. There's so much like social commentary and stuff in that. But yeah, that's what's really terrifying is yeah, like, so, yeah, he puts down the gun and the robot doesn't recognize that he put it down and the robot yeah. shoots him. <laughs> yeah. Horrifically like annihilates his body. Um, Yeah. That's yeah. And I'm thinking too, of like the, the scene in aliens in the extended edition where they have these like auto turrets <laughs> and the aliens are just getting like blown away. And it's like, if a person just happened to, I mean, humans do that kind of thing too. Like on the battlefield, you don't always recognize what's yeah. there and what's not, but I, an entire system, especially a nuclear system. Yeah. That that's a, that is a really, that is yeah, really I mean, horrifying. I guess. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can wonder if humans would make more or fewer errors, right? So well, we haven't blown ourselves I mean, I don't know what you think about the argument that nuclear weapons is in some sense. I I think that a lot of stuff that's said about <clears throat> nuclear weapons is is kind of overblown. And anyway, but it, do, it does seem like there is a sense in which um, it kind of made the world safer. I mean, there really hasn't been a world war since yeah, yeah. World War II. Since world War II. There are only two world wars. And then after that, we didn't have a third. I mean, yeah, so nuclear weapons reduce the probability of war, but they increase the consequences of it. Right. So whether the expected impact is um, better or worse is not obvious. 
Right. Yeah. There was a fair chance that we were going to have a nuclear war, you know, during the Cold War. And actually now there's a chance again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, so like I think, yeah, I think it is true that the nuclear weapons stopped us from going to war with the Soviet Union. Yeah. That like just if you were at the end of World War II and you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next, and you look at the Soviet Union run by Joseph Stalin and the United States, like they're diametrically opposed. They have opposed ideologies and opposed yeah. national interests. Like there's going to be another war, you would think. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that um, one of the things that's really interesting about about some of that stuff too is that um, I'm spacing on the guy's name right now, but there's a very there's a very infamous. Uh, uh, has he been in the Tom Woods show? He might. I don't think he's a libertarian, but he has this whole argument about how, and it seems like historically it's just sort of a fact at this point that the Japanese did not surrender because of uh, nuclear weapons. They it it really looks like if you look at the meetings that they had and memos and stuff that we have access to now, that the reason they surrendered actually was the declaration of war from the Soviets. And that they basically used the nuclear explosions um, as almost like a way to save face. So it's like, oh, they have these wonder, these wonder weapons, these, you know, insane, whatever. This is almost like an out for us, but we can't fight the Soviets and the Americans um, on two fronts. Yeah. I mean, what I heard was like, they knew that they were going to lose. Yeah, like the the Japanese military knew that they were they were not going to win the war in the Pacific. Um, and they were just like holding out, and they they might have been holding out to be able to negotiate better terms. Well, and that's what's stupid about I, people don't like it when you say this, but because the World War II has such a massive mythological presence in the American mind, but like that's what's so dumb about any time you put unconditional surrender on your opponent you're just going to make the the continuance of the war more likely ultimately yeah. and it's like yeah the the point should be not fighting this is one of my favorite lines in any movie ever is in crimson tide they have this this sort of gene hackman and denzel washington have this like debate involving like clausewitz and like the point of war and stuff and denzel washington says something like um I, I I can't I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it, it's the way he says it in the film just feels very profound. And it's like in the nuclear age, the main thing you're trying to do is avoid war. Like that really is what you that is the point of all of this is to not go to war. And infamously, you know, that film is all about like how this submarine is supposed to be like attacking. They're supposed to be responding to a nuclear threat that isn't real because they've lost contact. And that's a very underrated film from the nineties, I think, but that is, that's crazy. So we started talking about film mind and now we're talking about yeah. like nuclear proliferation and the yeah. ethical consequences of it. But yeah, the stakes, um, the stakes of nuclear war are pretty high. And that seems to, to mean that, you know, whatever you can do to avoid it is uh is is the is the good thing the right thing to do is there talk about 
automating that stuff or is it just that like this seems like something that they might have to do because of the speed issue um yeah that's what i was thinking like i mean i haven't heard any you know people who know anything um talking about doing that although they they might not talk about it you know even while they were planning it yeah huh. so like at this point they wouldn't be doing this at this point because they would be worried about an accident yeah Right. But sort of like as our trust in AI goes up and also as the technology becomes more advanced, um, it seems like a thing that might happen. Um, mm. Like if the Russians had faster missiles or if they were closer to us, then we would have a stronger incentive to automate the system. Right. And you might think like, well, why would we mm. do that knowing that there could be a false alarm and it could accidentally start a nuclear war? But the thing is like, well, we might do this because we want to prevent like we wanted to prevent the Russians from thinking that they could have a first strike, right? Because like, yeah. <laughs> if they knew that they could strike us before we had time to respond, then they might do that, right? Yeah. So we might want to tell them we're automating our system. So it's going to respond immediately. Is this, um, okay. I don't know how much time you have left, but we should, we should probably wrap up soon, but I feel like, uh, does any of this play into any of your ideas about anarchism? Because it seems like there would be yeah. some kind of connection here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good point. So, yeah, I mean, like one of the things that I mentioned in um, the problem of political authority is, um, you know, there's exactly one organization that has created a technology capable of wiping out the human species. That is the United States government, right? The only technology that we know of that might be able to kill literally everyone is nuclear weapons. And the only organization that has created them is, you know, the government. And that same government is probably working on more technologies right now. We don't know what kind of, you know, terrifying weapons we're going to have 100 years from now, but probably they'll be created by the government, especially the U.S. government. Right? Yeah. When the human species finally ends, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to end by being destroyed by weapons created by the government. I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. Have you seen the the latest trailer for Oppenheimer, the new Christopher Nolan movie? No. So I don't know how accurate any of it is, obviously, but there's a line. The, the it's terrifying. The trailer is just absolutely horrifying. There apparently, and I think I had heard about this before, but there was a legitimate debate about whether or not you know the pro i don't know anything about nuclear physics and stuff but the process by which you you know split the hydrogen atom or whatever it is that you do they they thought and this is stated like super clearly in the trailer they thought there was a chance that it might set the atmosphere itself on fire yeah. and destroy the planet yeah and literally there he's like well what is the chance that that might happen and he's like um you know it's like uh 99 point whatever and he's like wait so you're saying there's an actual chance like it could this could happen yeah. he's like well yeah but we have we have to do it anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's great that's crazy because we don't want the japs to win so we gotta <laughs> oh no we don't we don't want to contemplate the war being longer so we got to do it yeah and at this point it would have been like arguing for doing the test right because first they had to test the bomb 
Exactly. Right. And it's like the, the possibility of testing, it might end the world and they're going to do it anyway. So, okay. On an, I know this is like, this, this conversation has been very dominated by science fiction analogies. Yeah. Um, so on an anarchist, uh, because this is always, this is always the thing that conservatives like me are like, okay, so you anarchists, you know, you, you anarcho-capitalists, um, you're going to, you're going to get rid of, of government, but then you're going to have to put these systems in place that are all voluntary and stuff like that to kind of sort of replace government yeah. kind of, um, but they're going to be based on market incentives and things like that. So what happens to nuclear weapons? Like if, if some kind of peaceful anarcho-capitalist <laughs> revolution takes place in the next like five to 10 years, <laughs> what happens with like, yeah these it's massive gonna take, it's going to take more than 10 years to transition to anarchy yeah right and probably like you know the government needs to dismantle the nuclear weapons before they dismantle themselves uh that makes so, sense um so you know mm -hmm. and, like i thought you were going to ask oh well like maybe one of these private protection agencies will build nuclear weapons but uh you know probably not is that so it's extremely expensive and like mm. it, it took a long time like you know, nobody else nobody else has ever built weapons of mass destruction besides governments and that, right and it's like okay. actually it's not a good deal like you know even like if you're in the government if you cared about whatever the good of your society um it's not really a very good deal to build all these nuclear weapons it, you know like it, you spend a lot of money and then like they're weapons that you never use, hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. So like we've got these thousands of things sitting in there that were really expensive and they have to be maintained and yeah. we've never used them and we never want to use them, right? Mm. Yeah. So anyway, no, uh, but yeah, of course, like if there's another government that has them, then you can deter that government from attacking you. Right. By them. Although it's still not clear why you need like 5,000 of them. Yeah. So... I guess my concern is this is one of my big concerns with anarcho-capitalism is I feel like, cause there's been a lot of talk in certain sectors about how the nation state is kind of in some ways functionally irrelevant. That's obviously that's not literally true yet, but the idea that like, and I don't know, I don't know which side of the political spectrum this idea is more popular on, but um, you know, like something like snow crash where essentially it, they are in an anarcho capitalist society and really nation states have been replaced by corporations completely. Yeah. And that seems to be pretty likely in my opinion. And I'm not really sure what, you know, so like what would, I guess I want to know what your thoughts on that are in general, but it's like, it seems like it, it's not inconceivable that in 50 years, especially because, you know, I mean, uh, the U S government's not doing that much to try to go to Mars. I don't think, but like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk seem to want to try to go to Mars. Yeah. So then is it really out of the realm of, conceivability that the anarcho-capitalist future might involve nuclear weapons in the same way? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, 
like every anything's possible so to speak uh except impossible things but um yeah i mean there's just like there's less reason for a company to try to build a nuclear bomb right and yeah then and like and it's never happened like all the nuclear bombs in existence were made by governments <laughs> and they just have like a ridiculous oversupply and it's like well if we had a few nuclear bombs like that could deter an attack but we decided to build 5000 of them yeah and so we built enough to not only to deter an attack but also to be a threat to the survival of humanity yeah like why do we do that <laughs> so if you had a private company you wouldn't want to build so many that it was a threat to the survival of humanity you would just like want to deter someone else from attacking you or something i guess right so i guess that would be the motive because it would be literally it would be like a an issue of like balancing the budget versus because like jeff bezos is always going to care about whether or not amazon is cost efficient whereas the us government doesn't care about that at all and yeah. hasn't for like a long time yeah um so like they the 30 30 trillion dollar debt and everything <laughs> is is that kind of so it really all in the anarcho capitalist uh model of this it really all is based in like market incentives lead to peace that's yeah, the idea yeah 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 okay. you know like um you know, when why do countries go to war? It's like it's super harmful, you know? Like you yeah. destroy, you kill a bunch of people. And even if you're like a psychopath, you're also destroying a lot of money and buildings and stuff like that. And like, why, why do this? You're like, right. And like when you go to war, like you know the other side is going to fight back. So a bunch of your stuff is going to be destroyed. So it's like really expensive and it it doesn't seem like you get that much out of it that that could compensate for all the damage that occurs. Right. And like, well, yeah, what's the reason? I mean, partly because like people, the people who are deciding whether to go to war don't care. Like they don't have the right incentives. So when a bunch of stuff gets destroyed, those people don't themselves lose any money. Mm. It's like, you know, uh, George W. Bush decides yeah. to invade Iraq and he doesn't himself have to go there. No member of his family has to go to Iraq. So like no member of his family gets shot at. And also like a bunch of stuff gets destroyed, but it's none of it was his stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, even if the Iraqis somehow struck back and attacked America, like it wouldn't affect the Bush family in particular. So, um, so then why? Okay. Cause in the popular imagination war is capitalism like that's sort of the way that like you know whatever you want to the cathedral whatever word you want to use depicts it right like people go to war because there's some kind of market incentive yeah that's driving that like you can make a lot of money off of going to war it really seems like the opposite is true yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> so on the face of it Wow, I don't know, like destroying a whole bunch of stuff, like that's really profitable. <laughs> like, I don't know, it just seems like, you know, the two sides, if they cared about profit, they could negotiate a settlement that would be better for both sides than what's actually going to happen at the end of the war, right? Yeah. It's like, because like there's this huge amount of uh, value that got destroyed, like, you know, it seems like there's a huge profit to be divided up, which is all the amount of money that was going to be destroyed if you mm -hmm. went to war. But anyway, no. Um, so, like, there are people who profit from war 
although the country as a whole doesn't profit. Right. Right. Like, okay, well, people who are selling weapons, obviously. Well, as a matter of fact, no matter what happens, there are some people who profit. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, like as a way of explaining why stuff happens in the world, saying somebody profited from it, well, that's not very helpful. Like it's not predictive or explanatory because like literally almost everything somebody profits from. So how does that yeah. explain what's going to happen? Anyway. Okay. But, um, but the thing is like, so you have these, well, you have these military contractors who have an interest in there being a war, but that only starts a war if you have a government, Mm-hmm. Because, because then the contractors, like they can try to influence the government to start a war. Yeah. And then the government will pay them, the military contractors for yeah. weapons and stuff. But if there's no government and the contractor just decides to start a war on their own, then they're like, they use up their own weapons. So like they paid, they paid for the weapons that are then getting used up. And then like, where are they getting the profit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was what changed my mind about a lot of stuff was Rodney Stark wrote a little book on the Crusades. And he was like, the way that the Crusade narrative is usually told is it's this like colonialist endeavor. And, you know, these white Western Christians are making all this money off of like, you know, plunder and stuff. And in reality, they did it for very ideological Christian reasons to try to save their friends in the East. And they lost tons and tons of money and gave up property and stuff like this and really didn't benefit from it all that much. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was like, okay, this, this really is difficult to, if, if you want to equate, cause this, this tends to be the way that, you know, it's not a secret the dominant media narrative in the West is essentially leftist. And so they use the, like I just had Paul Gottfried on the other day to talk about anti-fascism and stuff. And fascism just gets thrown around without any recourse to like what it actually means. And so it's very popular, especially amongst European socialists to say capitalism and fascism are the exact same thing. (laughs) Yeah. Which is basically the opposite of the truth. Right. Right. Like the Nazis, we're socialists. Yeah. All, like they wanted the government to control the economy. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Or at least corporatist or something like that. But um, in any case, the, the, the point being that, um, so like if, so you, so this isn't a mischaracterization of the anarcho-capitalist position to, to say that if the future was this sort of like Amazon, and Tesla and or whatever Elon's, I don't know what his overarching company's name is, but like if the future is dominated by like five big corporations and these things essentially do replace like China, America in terms of like power, then they would be forced to negotiate over market things rather than blow each other up is that kind of the the division yeah i mean like well like first of all like the you know the hypothetical to start with is unrealistic right so i mean the way things work i don't know i think people are under the impression that the way things normally work in a competitive market is that somebody wins the competition and then that person just has total control over the 
industry or whatever. Mm. That's not the way things normally work, right? Actually, it's extremely difficult to attain a monopoly without the help of the government. Ah, uh, yeah. The main, the main way to man, obtain a monopoly is to get pretty big and then start lobbying the government to give your company special favors and, you know, to harm the other companies that are competing with you. Right. And so, all right. But anyway, so, and also like when you get a really big company, but, you know, you don't have special government favors, it's actually hard to maintain that position. And, you know, like these new companies start coming in and starting their own, whatever, they have new ideas. So, you know, you have this, uh, you have this Windows operating system, but then people start bringing in, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Microsoft was the biggest company, but then like Google shows up and it turns out that they're better. And then they make their own like Android operating system that beats out the um, Windows, whatever, whatever their um, phone operating system was that nobody uses anymore. (laughs) Anyway, and then like, well, Google will probably be replaced for search engines at some time. I don't know what the replacement will be, right? They'll probably Mm -hmm. get replaced because like a thing that happens is... um, I don't know, this is going off on a tangent. But anyway, the thing that happens with big companies in the market is, okay, so while the founder is still running the company, the founder tries to keep being innovative Mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever, making the company as good as it can be. But eventually that person retires and then the company gets taken over or, you know, the, the management is assumed by somebody else who basically just wants to keep making their salary. And so that person becomes more conservative because if you Mm -hmm. take risks, if you take a big risk and do something that other people are not doing and it goes badly, then you get fired, right? (laughs) You get in trouble or something, especially if you're not the founder of the company or just a manager who was hired. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you just do what everyone else is doing and it goes badly, no one's going to fire you for that because they won't blame you because everyone else was doing the same thing. (laughs) They will think it wasn't your fault. It was just like, you know, the industry is going down. Okay. So what, and if you're like, if you're making $10 million a year for managing a company, what makes sense rationally from the self-interested standpoint is to just try to preserve the status quo. You should Mm -hmm. not take big risks, changing things around because you're making $10 million a year (laughs) and there's not that much upside to having the company go up. Like, so what your, your salary is going to go up a little bit, but it's like, it doesn't matter, right? After you already have $10 million a year, it doesn't matter if you get more. So, okay, but you could lose it all if you take a risk and it goes badly. So you stop taking risks. And then what happens is that newer companies that are more innovative will enter the market and then they will be able to outcompete the old company, which is just sitting there trying to maintain the status quo. I guess, okay, that all makes a lot of sense in theory, but how would... Okay. And I get, I guess the, okay. I'm just going to ask my question. How does, I don't, I don't, we've been going for almost two hours, so I I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but how does someone compete with Amazon? Like I get Google really Google would not be that hard to outcompete. Like that's essentially uh, a technological thing. Somebody could come up with a better search engine, you know, with a, maybe a relatively small team of people. I don't know. But Amazon is like, and, and Bezos has always said this. He's always said that somebody somebody could come along. I just don't see how it's possible. 
at this point without them destroying the company from within because of like like you were saying so bezos dies or somebody else takes over or whatever and the yeah. next guy doesn't do anything right then the company could die but like yeah. how does anybody how is it possible to compete with amazon yeah well uh yeah so they do have an advantage in being really well known um so you know like if you start your own new i don't know like somebody can start a new site where you you do online shopping right or i mean in fact there are other sites but they're just not as well known but they usually okay, get but, bought up by amazon like that happens well, like pretty consistently i mean you know maybe but then like people can start people can start up companies just so that they can sell it to amazon and then yeah that, i think point, that happens too some point amazon is going to get tired of doing that but okay so yeah i mean somebody has to start up their own like online retail business and no one is stopping them from doing that mm. if they were better in some ways then maybe people would switch over they got to figure out a way to be better right and they have to be like significantly better not just a little bit better right um but i mean like you know i think yeah it'll, it'll probably only happen after jeff bezos steps down <laughs> and yeah. it gets taken over by somebody else you know somebody who's less driven to maximize and who just wants to maintain their nice 10 million dollar salary or whatever it is mm. i guess i think that i feel like like if you look at something like disney like disney is only has only grown and they I, like creatively i think they've become very decadent since yeah. walt's death but they've only grown yeah. in terms of like their corporate power and you could argue even their political power which is starting to get pushed yeah. back on now by places like florida yeah or whatever well, yeah so i mean like i don't know that might be an unusual company but like if you just look at so yeah, we should look at the history and not just look at a, the contemporary companies. Like if you go back to 1900 and look at the Dow 30, so the Dow Jones Industrial Average is made from the, it's computed from the stock prices of like 30 different companies, right? Which were thought to be the most important companies in the economy. You just go back and look at those. And um, so I don't actually have the list in front of me, but it's going to turn out that most of them are gone. Yeah. Okay. Like there's been almost complete turnover of the Dow 30. It might be a hundred percent turnover. That's interesting. Well, it's like, have you have you heard of the Blade Runner curse? No. So every company except for Coke that was depicted in Blade Runner was out of business by the end of the 80s. Yeah. And so it's this like yeah. it's like the hubris that because you think you're gonna be around in 2020 or whenever Blade Runner was actually set, um yeah. that you know, you've cursed yourself to go out of business. And even Coke almost like coke invented like new coke in like 1986 which was this massive disaster yeah yeah um but yeah no i guess that makes sense so so the this is okay so the theory really is this the anarcho-capitalist theory is like if you have market incentives driving everything without government at all then things like is this creative destruction is that kind of what you're you're getting at partially so that's yeah. going to keep Amazon from becoming a monopoly because something's going to come along that's going to ruin the company or someone will outcompete them or something like that. And that's sort of the 
the mechanism for for peaceful interaction yeah yeah okay yeah i have uh okay you know i just i just went to um wikipedia to find the dow 30 companies i guess <laughs> so this is from 1901 there's uh amalgamated copper mining company international paper <laughs> company the united states leather company american smelting and refining company okay and it goes from there you have not heard of these things the people's gas light and coke company yeah i've never heard of any of these companies <laughs> so anyway okay well maybe maybe we'll end on that then but so what I, everything i'm saying this is not like a mischaracterization this is this is kind of the the way that the theory is supposed to play out is that right yeah okay yeah i mean well you know like um it would be great if companies continued to be uh innovative forever but it's, that's not going to work right <laughs> and anyway like in most in most industries there are many different companies and there's like there's not a reason for there to be dominance by one company or a small number yeah. um it's just that there's this there are a few particular cases where there's an advantage there's like a big advantage for the biggest company that enables it to get bigger so uh like you know with operating systems that's a special case because basically because people want to have the same operating system that other people have mm -hmm. And so like that generates a possibility of a natural monopoly. But mm. in most cases, you don't need to have the same thing that other people have. And so there's like, there's not really a reason for there to be a monopoly. Well, and I'm even thinking of like, because I feel like Amazon is the main one in the popular imagination that gets, that, that people go to all the time. But yeah. they're, they have a, they're very bad with a lot of things so like they're great with they're great with probably 70 80 percent of products but they've had a lot of difficulty with food um mm -hmm. which i think they've gotten better on but the big thing if you kind of care about your clothes at all amazon's actually not a great resource for clothes like there's this company and this is not a pitch or an ad or anything there's this company called yeah. um true classic that does like basic men's apparel mm. and it's really nice like the stuff is like it's a little more expensive you know mm. but it they're just really nice and they've resisted being sucked up by amazon or whatever and it mm. seems like that that space the sort of boutique clothing space has actually been highly resistant to amazon so yeah, I'm yeah. just I'm trying to find anything that can keep me from becoming a full anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. And it's just difficult. Yeah. It's becoming increasingly you know, difficult. I think people like to complain about Amazon because they're big and Jeff Bezos is rich. Yeah. But it's like it's such a huge improvement, you know, <laughs> like over having to drive to Walmart or whatever to buy your mm -hmm. stuff that I can like click some buttons on my computer right here. And, and, you know, it'll come in like, sometimes it comes tomorrow. Yeah. And before Amazon showed up, you can never get stuff tomorrow. Yeah. You know, they're, they're like so much better than the previous status quo. Yeah. Okay. Right? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, and they like free delivery, you know, and then like, if you don't like the thing you, you can return it. And it's like, I just go, I walk over to the whole foods and I go, 
here, you know, take this back. I don't have to repackage it or anything. Just yeah. give it to them. It's so easier. It's like so much easier than what happened before Amazon was around. That's true. Okay. Well, we are not at operatives for Jeff Bezos. He doesn't give either one of us money. But Although he should be. Yeah, he probably should. <laughs> he should probably be giving you and Brian Kaplan a lot of money because you guys like go to bat for him. That's against, right, yeah. against the socialists all the time. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, do you have any, I, I, I forgot on my last episode, but do you have any, um, I, I like to give my, my guests the opportunity to plug their own stuff, but also recommend like anything they've been watching or listening to or reading. <laughs> do you have any recommendations for what people should be like shows or books or. Oh, uh, Hmm, yeah, I should have thought about that before. We, you seem uh, to be a big Star Trek guy. Yeah, yeah, Star Trek is great. Uh, I watch all of them. I like Star Wars too, of course. Are you um, up to date on, like, have you seen Picard? I'm not, no. Okay. Um, um, yeah, so I just watched the uh, Discovery, you know, like the four seasons that are out of Star Trek Discovery. Did you think it was pretty good? Uh, so, you know, I, I enjoyed it, although... I, I didn't like the little woke elements in it, <laughs> but, uh, but I didn't find that they destroyed the whole thing. So is that a recommendation or are you, or is that more of a complaint that the older stuff is better? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. Like, um, cause it, it depends on the person, like, cause I know that some people were really upset about sort of like wokeness infiltrating it and really thought that it was worse. And also people were upset about it, like not being true to Gene Roddenberry's vision, I myself don't care. I don't care that it's not true to Roddenberry's vision, like <laughs> whatever that, you know, like sometimes there are significant conflicts between the characters on, on the ship. Like mm -hmm. apparently like that's bad from the Star Trek standpoint or whatever, but I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, and like, you know, oh, you're supposed to portray a positive, optimistic vision of the future and not a negative mm -hmm. vision. I don't care about that either. So anyway, so like if you care about those things and you, you wouldn't like it. Um, but, you know, I found it fun. Actually, what bothers me more is um, these stories where there's stuff that happens that's totally implausible. Mm -hmm. And or like just they they didn't explain how some bizarre thing is supposed to be true. <laughs> so uh, like somehow there's like fungus mycelium that's like throughout space. That's totally implausible. And also like it's in some kind of alternate dimension. Like really? Like the fungus that we're, because this is a real fungus, mycelium. <laughs> and like it's in another dimension and it's spread throughout the galaxy. And somehow you can use this fungus to teleport. Like there's like a, you know, the ship's drive uses that. Like this totally doesn't make any sense. Is, is that really, <laughs> is that that different though from like dilithium crystals and the way that like, the ships move through space. It's yeah, all kind of space magic, right? I mean, well, like it's not like scientifically accurate, but the warp drive is more plausible. Okay. <laughs> there's actually, that's there's fair. actually a theory about warp drive, you know, from real physicists, okay. but it, does, it requires some weird, you know, exotic matter or something. Yeah. Anyway. Of the classic um, films, what's your favorite? Um, like what's your go-to? I mean the Star Trek films? Yeah. Or just any film? Uh I don't know. I didn't, didn't think about that much. I guess I think there was one about the Borg whose name I've forgotten. First contact, that's your go-to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that okay. one. Yeah. That's I a like great sci-fi movie. When the Borg show up, it's always it's always fun times. 
So you're more of a next gen guy rather than original series. Yeah, uh, it was better, but I, I enjoyed the original series when I was watching it when I was a kid. Okay. But I'm not sure I would enjoy it today because of the whole 1970s look. And... I That's kind of my favorite thing about it, actually, is how sort of uh, that, that classic era of, you know, mid 20th century sci-fi. I think my yeah. favorites are probably Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country. Um, Those are probably my two favorite. But I, I just, I like Nicholas Meyer in general, like... I like this movie he made from the seventies called uh, time after time, which is really kind of feels like almost a precursor to star Trek four, which is the whale one. Mm, I'm a, I'm a much bigger fan of the films than I am the shows. I just, I have difficulty maintaining interest in TV shows. I've found it's just, it's easier for me with films. Okay. Okay. Well, Uh, do you have anything else you want to recommend besides your, besides your sub stack? Yeah. uh, Yeah. You know, buy my books. Like, you know, my book about knowledge, knowledge reality, reality, and value. <laughs> and also my book about understanding knowledge, by the way, on Amazon. And get, and Jeff Bezos will also get a cut of that, but still, <laughs> you know, make him richer, but also it'll make me richer. Um, and then yeah, what's your, uh, what's your check, Substack? Check out, yeah, check out my blog, which is fakenews.substack.com. It's spelled F A K E N O U S. And yeah, there's something there every week. It's fun. Hey, great. Thank you so much. This was this was much longer than I thought it was going to be and much more wide ranging. But that's it's that's, true. It's hard to shut me up, you know. It's, that's that's great. No, it it about halfway through, I was like, this must be what it feels like to do a Joe Rogan episode. <laughs> We've talked about like almost everything. All right. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and stop recording. So bye guys.